Hello, I'm Robert Picardo. I'm Sylvester McCoy. I'm John Bett. And we are the cast of A Joke, and you are listening to Neil Before Blog. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is exactly what meets the eye. I'm your host Craig and I have travelled across the universe to discuss the Transformers reboot, prequel, whatever it is, Bumblebee. To have this discussion, I need to assemble a brave squad of Autobots. So it was tough to find them because they were hiding in plain sight, but we have Aaron. <laughs> I don't know if that was good or bad, but hello. <laughs> uh, and Angus. Hello. I had to go with a kind of Transformers-ish theme for the intro. <laughs> no, he did, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to give away his cover either. He could have waited a second. <laughs> what, what would you be disguised as if you could disguise as something? So I would, I don't know, something that's the wrong size. So, like a gun or a microscope <laughs> that... I think we should pick something from our childhoods and just, but also be something quite useless. So I'll be a grasshopper. <laughs> I think I would just be a couch. Really? Yeah. Hmm? No one suspects the couch. A soft furnishing robot. Yeah. It would work. People would walk past me because they're like, "Nah, a couch can't be dangerous." And before they know it, I'm not dangerous. It's not as easy to roll out as a couch. No, no, I need probably need movers to, to get me on. <laughs> Perhaps Optimus Prime to put me in his trailer to take me from place to place. <laughs> well, that trailer's got to be used for something, isn't it? It's a mobile battle station. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you know, I was wondering if it was going to be you or me that said something like that. <laughs> okay. Right, so before we get into our main topic, which you may have guessed may be somewhat Transformers related, uh, we should start with our normal Neil Before Rise Against feature so we can talk about something else for a little while. Everybody have entries? Yes. Yes. Well, Angus, I choose you first. Okay, that's not right. (laughs) Pokemon is not my Neil Before. Um, My Neil Before is... Batman Ninja <laughs> on Netflix. I saw it the other day and loved it. I was smiling constantly all the way through, laughing out loud at multiple points. Uh, have either of you seen it? No. I'm a little bit far behind on my DC animated movies, oh, so I haven't seen this one yet. It's amazing. It, it's um, 
the concept is that um, some MacGuffin goes off at Arkham Asylum and it transports all the Batman baddies uh, back into feudal Japan. <laughs> and for some reason, Batman arrives two years later than them. So so they're all transported by the same event, but um, but the, the baddies have all had chances to kind of set up their uh, feudal lordships in different provinces, and they're all kind of vying for power over feudal Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is brilliant. It's the the sort of the design, the animation, everything about the way it's presented. It's like Batman anime. It's fantastic. It's uh, there's I don't want to give away too many spoilers about it, but the the climactic battle is amazing. Definitely worth a watch. Does the animation style change between the two segments? Basically, um, a, a little, but not as much. There's a segment in the middle that actually. Um, it's to do with a kind of you, it's to do with the Joker and you're not really sure what's going on with him uh, and the animation style changes there and we were a bit like what? why has this changed all of a sudden what's going on, it gets all kind of dreamlike and then it changes back And uh, but yeah, highly recommend it it's a, a great watch I don't know that much about it um, just haven't had the chance to watch it yet but my assumption was that it was just going to be another one of these like Elseworlds things where it's just a Batman story but set in feudal Japan yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and they don't explain why Batman's suddenly in feudal Japan because you don't have to. <laughs> well, that's the I suppose that's the point of the MacGuffin, but it's all in Japanese and just hearing everything, um, you know, pronounced. That was part of what made it amazing. All this kind of yelling in Japanese. Uh, the Joker is fantastic, um, and as I say, it's all kind of anime. So basically, all the kind of stereotypes of that genre are kind of thrown in there, and it's. Yeah, just just brilliant. Uh, I will watch it whenever I get the chance. <laughs> I I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I think with the DC animated films, they need to make films about characters that aren't Batman, because there's so many of them. Yeah, I think it maybe. I mean, the one thing you could level at it is that yeah, like you said, it is just another Batman story in a different setting, and the characters are kind of the you know as you'd expect them to be but just kind of out of place and time but I don't know there was something about it just really kind of um, I just really enjoyed it and and as I say kind of sat there with a smile on my face it's only an hour and a half long and yeah it's one of the most enjoyable things I've watched in a long time is it good or is it ridiculously bad? Therefore, it's amazing. No, no, not not bad at all. It's good and and but like surprisingly good and just yeah. you're like, what am I, What is going on now? What am I watching? Uh, uh, yeah, so many so many choices in there. Like how Batman decides to disguise himself, seeing as we're talking about uh, robots in disguise. When he when he arrives there, uh, he has to kind of um, blend in somehow, and he he disguises himself as a as a Western monk. <laughs> part of his part of his costume to do with his hairstyle is another just fantastic part of it. It's just one of these like head shaking. Uh, you're, it's so so amazing, so fantastic that it all kind of builds together to create this just incredible product. There we go, Batman Ninja. Aaron, what are you kneeling before? Um, I'm. Sp- Struggling to decide if I'm kneeling before rising against part of it, but I'm going to pick at least season three of Travellers to get some mention one way or the other, I think. Season three of Travellers, which recently dropped on Netflix. Yes, they always do a 
it's sort of a pre-Christmas drop, whatever. I don't know if that's if that's a normal slot, but that's definitely theirs. Um, I think they've. I don't know. It's hard to talk about the the nil before without the rise against. They, um, but it it I did enjoy it. Uh, to just to put it simply, I think they've they they managed to solve the season two problem, which we talked about, or at least I go on about quite a lot, and. And on, and they've also had a good series three. They've they've always had a direction to go in. I don't know if they've just ruined that with season the ending of season three, um, without wanting to spoiler it. But I'm still on board. I don't know how much do we spoiler of these things. I would say keep it to a minimum, just yeah. in case people haven't seen it. Um, funnily enough, the time that you do discuss it was on the uh, time travel podcast. Which appeared on feeds just about a year ago, almost to the day that we're recording. But we don't know when we recorded it. Was it a year ago or a year from now? Well, that's the mystery. (laughs) May have been recorded. Maybe some of us recorded it. Maybe some of us haven't. I don't know. Such is the beauty of the the time travel podcast. Could have taken place in feudal Japan. Maybe it did. (laughs) No one can tell. You'd have to listen to it and find out. Uh, I guess, have you seen Travellers? I've not seen it at all. I have not seen it. Well, that'll be that then. (laughs) Fair enough, Aaron likes it. I do want to watch it one of these days, it's just there's too much. Um, I need that. I need people to donate lots of money to the website so I can take a couple of years off and just watch TV. Not that that was a plug for donations or anything, but (laughs) finance my year off, please. I take a gap year as well. Yeah, finance all of our years off. It's, it's a lot of money, <laughs> but you know, the listeners can, in theory, afford it. If every listener gave a pound each, we'd have not, not that much. Money. <laughs> so my kneel before is actually related to the thing I said earlier. Uh, I am going to kneel before the trailer for Detective Pikachu, um, because I think it looks really funny. Ryan Reynolds voicing Pikachu. Um, when I first read about it, I thought it was a hoax. I didn't think it was real. <laughs> and then it was like, there's a trailer. And I was like, this has got to be fake. And it's like, no, this is something that has happened and they've actually spent money on it. And it looks really cool. I've wanted to see live action Pokemon since I was playing Pokemon. So, I mean, they're not live action. They're still animated. But you know what I mean? Sort of photorealistic-ish. And I'm sort of getting my wish here. So... Is this voicing Pikachu as in an I am Groot kind of situation? Well, for some reason, the kid, uh, the lead kid, can hear him speak English. Okay. <laughs> in the voice of Ryan Reynolds. But everyone else just hears him say, you know, Pika Pika. It's unknown why, because it's just a trailer. But it looks like a bit of fun. And I quite like the idea of kind of telling these little standalone Pokemon stories just peppered throughout the expansive universe that they have access to of course it's more likely that if Detective Pikachu does well we'll just get more Detective Pikachu movies <laughs> but yeah I'm amped for it, uh, I think it'll be cool um, still okay like Pokemon right? Uh, still? To, to some extent um, yes, why not? Of all the things you could like, yeah. what's wrong with Pokemon? 
considering the thing we're here to talk about as well. Has anyone else seen this trailer? Or did you believe it was a hoax and just scroll past it? I did see the trailer. I don't know how much it convinced me it was going to be more than a, a gimmick or not. I, I mean, the, once you've heard his voice, then where does it go from there? So maybe there's lots of adult humour coming out because he's got this deep, gruff voice and he tells adult jokes or something as well. But I don't know, it could go either way. I have not heard of it, and it sounds like it could just be another sort of Deadpool tie-in marketing <laughs> for the next appearance of Deadpool. You know, first Celine Dion, now Pikachu, no one's safe. I think Pikachu will cameo in the next uh, Deadpool movie. <laughs> also voiced by Ryan Reynolds, of course. Because who else would you get to voice Pikachu, apparently? <laughs> Silly. But, you know, there's a room for a bit of silliness in our lives. So that's that. That... It's going to be fun. I'll eagerly await it. Uh, so let's move on to Rise Against. Angus, you go first again. I didn't have much. Uh, I was going to Rise Against award shows because the Golden Globes has just happened and that's all just a bunch of um, self-congratulating backpatting. But I just saw that um, Will Poulter has quit Twitter because people were bullying him because of the way he looked in Bandersnatch. And I think that's pretty sad so uh social media probably in general but more specifically morons on twitter who troll people off of it yeah i'd agree with that um just people not being very nice because they they can hide behind this cloak of anonymity yeah yeah i mean we could we could go on for hours about you know guardians of the galaxy 3 and i mean that wasn't so much trolling that was more calculated attack but uh, yeah yeah it's just a shame that there are so many examples but uh so i could probably save that and say it again for the whatever next podcast i appear on but um yeah it's just a that is just a shame and something i am rising against cool aaron do you hate social media i despise facebook with a passion beyond reckoning fair enough <laughs> including its um, ability to organise podcasting events uh, especially that yeah. <laughs> just eats into his free time <laughs> so Aaron what are you rising against I think I'm going to have to pick The Good Place Season 3 oh. which is a bit of a shame um, because I really enjoyed The Good Place when it started and I don't believe they solved the season two problem. I think they just found that they'd got nowhere to go after their big first season. Again, won't spoiler it, but I think once you get past that, there's there's a big struggle for where they're going, and it's it's suffering the expansion problem in now in season three, where they in a comedy drama now have to save the universe. Mm. And it it's if it feels like it felt like it was lost in season two, and now it feels like it's just running blindly into the darkness, hoping it'll stumble across some something really amazing. I, I think it's just it's it's gone too far from its original purpose to really capture what was at the start so charming. By lost, you mean it's kind of aimless and not like lost the TV show. 
I do not mean it to be like Lost, no. There are a few <laughs> things that are like Lost. Um, yeah. I, I don't mind season three so much. Um, I'm still enjoying it. I'm still watching it. Uh, it's probably it's not as good as it has been, but it's, it's still reasonably diverting. I think the problem was I found season one funny, and it was season two that I think they either suffered the problem or make the choice because I never really know if this is a conscious decision or not on behalf of comedies to move to drama. It's that assumption straight away in season two. Well, the comma, it's now no longer a comedy. It's a drama with comic elements and we're watching for the characters. And I thought that's too early for it to make that stumble. Unless, it, unless people do this by choice. I don't think so, but it made it seem like it had run out of steam very quickly. I haven't seen any of it, but do you think it is one of those, you know, they had a good idea for the first season. It was far more successful than they expected, and then they had to kind of quickly spin something else out of that idea? I, I, I get that impression, definitely. The, yeah. you could, if it had been cancelled at the end of season one, it would have been the most amazing cliffhanger ending in, the, in, in that you, you've seen in, in, in a simple comedy, you know. Uh-huh. Simple comedy is not fair, actually, but in, in, a, in, a, in a little comedy drama. And it felt like everything obviously was building up to that cliffhanger. With, and then I bet everybody thought, after it aired, right, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that it has a fairly limited shelf life. I don't think there's much further they can go after the point they're at now. So I wonder if they are building up to sort of an end point and maybe that end point was sort of planned from the get-go, who knows. Um, I guess we'll see if and when it ever comes back. It's on hiatus at the moment, so it'll... Well, it is it coming back. back. Yeah, it's coming back in 10 days, I think. Is it? Okay. Yeah. You know more about it than I do. Cool. I do. Yeah. Um, fair enough. I can see why there's a lot of people that see it's the weakest. And it's definitely the weakest season. I'm just yeah, it's a, I think it's the only sitcom y thing I watch. I mean it's not really a sitcom, but you know, that kind of twenty minute comedy thing. Yeah. It's the only one I watch at the moment. Um and I kind of watch two or three at a time because I always forget that it's on. You know, and then I'll fire up Netflix and there it is, and then I get three episodes and that's an hour of my life that I get to just sit and watch something. So there we go. Um my rise against is an is a recent poll done by the Hollywood Reporter where they surveyed two thousand two hundred and one people asking them what film they would like to see remade. Um and the top result was Back to the Future. Just who are these two thousand two hundred and one people and what are they playing at? Uh do not remake Back to the Future. It doesn't need a remake. There's no way you can make it any better than it already was. So, just stop it. Surely not all 2,201 voted for Back to the Future. No. (laughs) High on the list was Toy Story. You want a remake of Toy Story when there's a fourth one coming out this year? Uh, You know, there's. I want a live-action Toy Story, just like (laughs) Lion King. (laughs) Uh, Give it long enough and it'll happen. Yeah, I could have rose against the Lion King trailer as well. Uh, Indiana Jones was high on that list because uh, you know why not, and Jurassic Park was also high on that list. <laughs> what? Wow. 
they already did that. We made Jurassic Park. It's called Jurassic World. Yeah, and it was crap. So, uh, I mean, we've had, we're ha- we've got Brexit happening. We've got Trump, and now people want a Back to the Future remake. The final wow. nail. Did you know that Brexit has now got a political drama based on it already coming out soon with Benedict Cumberbatch? Yes, Chris rose against it on a previous uh, podcast. Good for him. <laughs> you know, we're now so desperate for tell you, you don't even wait for the event to finish before we dramatise it. It's insane. Yeah. It's a bit like um, making new seasons of Game of Thrones when the books haven't even written. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's the first adaptation to eclipse the thing it's adapting. <laughs> Um, of course, you can have something like The Hobbit, where it's actually quicker to read the book than it is to watch the film. <laughs> I mean, assuming you read at a reasonable pace, you could you could easily read The Hobbit in what? Assuming uh, you exit anyway. the European Union at a reasonable pace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that. Uh, I did say no politics, but you know, oh. I had to use it to, to illustrate my point of. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. If if we get back to the future remake, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm just getting off this planet. It just shows how dire things are getting if you're <laughs> breaking your own no politics rule. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that is our um, award-winning feature. I don't know what award it won, but it won one. The Neil Before Blog Best New Feature Award. There we go. Um, keep, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so we're on to our main topic, which is the recent Transformers movie, Bumblebee. So we'll start off with a bit of background. Um, what is your background with Transformers in general? Uh, Aaron, you go first. So this is the point in this entire podcast run where we get to talk about something that is really close to my heart and none of this superhero nonsense. <laughs> We're not even going to get to the spoiler section, are we? This is this this is this is the proper stuff now. This is where we all do the rest of it. Filibuster run. <laughs> um, as 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 you might guess, of course, I was raised on Transformers. This is my era, the original uh, well, I say the original generation one cartoon. Not raised by Transformers, so it's no. not like the Jungle Book. Quite, n- not quite, no. <laughs> um, and I also read the comics that were around at the same time. Um, and the 19, I think it's 86, actually, 1986 movie was like a seminal point in, in my existence. It's, it's a film that I... It's, it's one of the first films I remember. It's when I started to actually pay attention to, to things like... Uh, to, to that sort of stuff. So eighty six, bang on. Yeah. yeah. The Transformers call on the movie. Yeah, the, the 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 two thes in there is a bit difficult, but it. Yeah. 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 Everyone will just call it the Transformers movie or Transformers the movie. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Only one definite article allowed. <laughs> yeah, so you're a big fan. What about? Anything following the the eighties stuff? Um, have you seen any of the kind of other cartoons? Um, the well, Michael I, Bay films, dare we say? Oh, Michael Bay films! Good God! Um, <laughs> right, so I, I watched the first of the Michael Bay films, and it destroyed my soul. Um, <laughs> is it? I mean, it's obviously you can't expect people to 
remake things without changing them. And if you don't remake a story in a different image, then you're not doing anything useful. So, so I will. I won't want to be the person that says there was no purpose behind what he did. But the thing that I wasn't able to get past is the Michael Bay stuff for me didn't capture anything of the feel of the Transformers as I knew and growing up. It, it felt like something completely different. Fine, they used the same names for the characters. I appreciate they got uh, Peter Cullen in to do a voice that I would have recognised, but that was just on paper, the similarities, the, the spirit of it, the essence of it. I don't believe he captured any of it. And, and all that means is it wasn't for me, but when I was in there specifically not enjoying any of it, then that was it. I wasn't going to go back and see it anymore. Fair enough. Yeah, I get the impression that Michael Bay wasn't even trying to do that, so I suppose it wasn't. No. no. Yeah, it wasn't that he tried and failed, it was just, yeah, it wasn't on his mind. No. It wasn't something they wanted to do. Uh, any of the other cartoons, or did you kind of stop after the eighties cartoon? That was you. I did see some of the cartoons, but they, I think, because it was such a big part of my childhood, I found it very difficult to watch some of the other ones. Actually, it wasn't something that I've watched now as an adult and think, "Oh, that's an interesting addition." that's taken the plot in a new direction. I wasn't able to intellectually grasp any of the other ones in the same way. Whenever I watched them, it was, well, this isn't the same. And why I'm interested in this. And to some extent, even some of the ones, I think it's Beast Wars, I watched it, and they did a strange new graphics. Was it, was it early computer-generated stuff? I'm not even sure. Yeah. But it, it, the, the, there were no background pictures at all. They did a great job of of designing a foreground and then it was just a series of grey blobs in the background and whereas again if you're paying attention to the plot you don't necessarily need that you watch the foreground it's fine it, it was just another thing that was too starkly different to what I remember as so defining for me because it's it was part of that era that that we grew up in people my age where if you didn't go to church and you weren't getting your morality from other places, you very much, I think, some of us pulled our morality from from these 80s cartoons. And some of them are more blatant than that. He-Man, for example, with its mm-hmm. end-of-episode lessons. But others still had that uh, sort of guiding light principle behind them that they were trying to do something for the kids to watch. And I do think part of that defined me. So then when I'm looking at other things later on, and it was totally different, they want to do more challenging plots, they want to go in a different direction, maybe they want to go rebellious, as I think, Craig, you've said some of the 90s stuff is. Again, I couldn't connect with it. It wasn't me. It wasn't what I wanted. So I think I'd, I'd moved on uh, somehow or, or couldn't go back, whichever, whichever is the truth. <laughs> maybe this, uh, my statement about being raised by Transformers wasn't entirely inaccurate. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Dances with Autobots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, as a follow-on, what did you think of Bumblebee then, as a film? Without so, spoiling it? without spoiling it, yeah, it's much more like the original. It, it was something that, by contrast, I felt was trying to connect back to Generation One. It it did try and capture the eighties. Obviously, that's not a spoiler. You know, that was so clear all the way through it. It 
was aimed at, I'd say, a family audience rather than the child audience, but of course the family includes the child. So they they really were connecting back to the to the to, to the, the the story that I knew, and because it's eighties, because it's about trying to become better, trying to go beyond your problems. It also had the connection to those old moral stories. It wasn't, I don't think it was a particularly moral story, but you know what I mean? It had that sort of development storyline that wasn't, a, it wasn't focusing purely on the action and the combat and it wasn't supposed to be a thriller. It, it was more of a character piece. So I, th- I think I agree with, I, th- I saw one of the reviews online because I couldn't help myself looking. Someone said, it was, it was the film that was trying to reconnect with the old audience in the way that the Michael Bay stuff wasn't, and to me that was absolutely true. Cool, Angus. What's your connection to Transformers as a brand? Um, as a brand, well, I've got similar um, feelings to Aaron on the sort of G one um, original animated movie sort of era. Uh, I can remember. Um, I had Transformers toys, I watched all the cartoons, and I played with those toys and acted out scenes from that movie. Uh, as kids do, instead of just making up your own stories, you kind of reenact stuff that you've seen on TV. I think the transforming was a lot slower. Uh, yeah, but I, did, I soundtracked it all with, you know, <laughs> as accurate a noise as I could make. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so, I love so much about that movie, and I remember, you know, that some of the I don't want to spoil anything that happens in that, but you know, there's some pretty dramatic um, events and uh, life lessons to be learned <laughs> about love and loss. Um, the soundtrack of that movie is amazing. I I still listen to the music from that soundtrack, uh, and I suppose that's probably what I would have wanted uh, a live-action Transformers movie to, to be like and to, to make me feel, and I don't think that any of the Michael Bay ones did that. Um, I did watch a bit of Beast Wars, but I think that, that was kind of late 90s and I was maybe aging out of cartoons at that point. I say that fully aware that uh, I'm talking about a Transformers um, film on a podcast. And, and you just talked about Batman Ninja. For- and I talked about another cartoon that I've watched, yeah, and we spend plenty of time talking about superheroes and uh, cartoons and movies and things like that. Um, so yeah, Beast Wars wasn't really ever a, a, a much of a thing for me. So yeah, firmly rooted in, in G1 and uh, and I had, you know, the the knockoff toys, the the GoBots and Rock Lords and things like that that also transformed. Anything that transformed was cool and it didn't matter that it wasn't a proper transformer and all the other action figures kind of got involved in transformer stories as well. So uh, that was definitely like the kind of that was the driving uh, action that I was that I would have been playing with with my toys. Um, Proprietary properties don't have any place in a child's magic <laughs> exactly spider-man can fight whoever he wants spider-man can fight the terminator in my case <laughs> yeah, uh, so bumblebee then what did you think of that as um yeah as as aaron said i think that it kind of it sidestepped a lot of what was wrong with the the bay films even though he's still involved um taking it back to the 80s and giving it that kind of innocence making it a a story of one girl and her um autobot uh 
removed a lot of that, just the the kind of um, world-ending nonsense that Bay had in his movies, where it was just giant battles and massive robots smashing into each other over and over again for three hours at a time. Um, again, the, the what I loved about the um, the original animated movie is that kind of relationship with Daniel and Hot Rod and I, even though, you know, the human character is supposed to be who you identify with, I always wanted to be a Transformer, so I would prefer to have been Hot Rod. So in this case, I suppose I want to be Bumblebee. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it kind of gets back to that um, core uh, plot point there of, of that bond between one boy, or in this case, girl, and, uh, and their best friend who happens to be a transforming robot cool uh, my connection to transformers is far less profound uh, i don't really have one um i didn't watch the the cartoon growing up i was more into turtles and superheroes and power rangers although i totally get it because when you talked about sort of aging out of the first generation of these characters I was a bit like that with Power Rangers anything beyond Mighty Morphin I was less interested in <laughs> until it got to the point where I wasn't watching it and then I got you know I got a, a serviceable uh, I mean I would argue very good Power Rangers movie in I think 2017 um, you know that the paid homage to the original in, in a way that I enjoyed so you know someone put some effort into that one as well that was nice Um I like the Michael Bay films. I'll qualify that by saying I know they're not that good, but I really liked the first one when I first saw it. I hated the second one. Everybody hates the second one. Uh, I like the third one, and then the two Mark Wahlberg ones I'm fairly indifferent to. Uh, the fifth one, I think, is one of the most boring things I've ever had to sit through. Um, it's just... I don't know, maybe by that point I was fed up with it, and I was like, this... This style can't show me anymore. Um, it has, you know, it's it's given me everything I can get out of it. So, you know, I don't want any more of these. So this film kind of weirdly answered a need that I didn't know I had, and you know, I really enjoyed it. Um, I could understand what references they were trying to make to the old stuff, but I didn't. I wasn't really connected to them, but I don't think it throws those references in your face either, which is nice, because um, there's nothing worse than pointing out continually pointing out how clever you are and how much you remember something that was old and trying to pass that off as nuance. So it's good that the references are there, they're off to the side, they're there to be enjoyed if you like them, and if you don't understand them, it doesn't affect your enjoyment at all. Was that yeah. statement aimed at J.J. Abrams? Yes. <laughs> well, it is now that you said it. Anyway. It's aimed at anything that, that's sort of a shallow cash grab mm -hmm. revival of an old thing, you know, like... I mean, I could lobby that criticism at Michael Bay himself for the Turtles uh, when he did... Well, he didn't direct it, but produced the sequel to his produced TMNT film. It was just full of, let's chuck Krang in, let's chuck Bebop and Rocksteady in, and they just don't find any purpose for it whatsoever. So, yeah, empty referencing. You know, it, it shows. I mean, even if you're not connected to it, you'll just be annoyed by it. At anyway, because it's thrown it at you, and this film doesn't do that. So, good on them for that. Well done, Travis Knight. I don't even remember um, 
I, I can kind of remember what happened in the first Michael Bay Transformers movie, but then the rest, I don't think I've seen the the last one. But they they all just kind of blend together for me, and uh, kind of a bit like what Aaron said. You know, they're they're obviously uh, they obviously have an audience because they were they kept making them. <laughs> Presumably, they wouldn't have done that if people weren't going to see them. But I just have to, yeah, I just have to accept that they weren't for me. I did enjoy the nostalgia of the first one and hearing Peter Cullen as Optimus Prime was great. But um, beyond that, yeah, they were, um, I just, yeah, they weren't for me. And it was a genuine visual achievement as well. You know, the, the first one, like nothing had been ever done like that in live action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it had that going for it. Um, and it made you wait for that transforming stuff as well, didn't it? You know, it was it was a good chunk of the way through the film before you finally saw it in kind of all its glory. It was teased before that, but you get to sort of the midpoint and then that's when you first get it. And, and sort of full, not out of frame, badly lit kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, shall we move into the spoilers? Transform into some spoiling thing. Insert transforming noise here. here. Insert transforming noise here. Autobots, transform and roll out. Yep. Could be that. Could be that too, yeah. I, I feel like I could separate each segment with that. Oh, you should. <laughs> Maybe I will. Who knows? The gods of editing may smile on us today. And if this was visual, it could be like my logo spinning into Aaron's logo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that for the YouTube upload. Oh, go on. I don't know how to do that. So. <laughs> if anyone wants to do it for me, give me a shout. <laughs> okay, so our first post-spoiler segment is the Q&A. And we have some questions from audience members. And they're all real people, as you may uh, be shocked by. So, um, Angus, I think you said you had a couple of questions from the audience as well, so we'll just go through them and then see how it goes. So, the first question I got asked was by Susan. What happened to the beehive? Say what? So, when uh, Charlie first meets Bumblebee, or first discovers Bumblebee, there's a beehive that's been built underneath the... um, you know, we're next to the wheel. Oh, yeah. One of the wheels. And then in the next or the next time she goes to get Bumblebee and is trying to get the car to start, there's no bees. And there's no evidence that she got rid of the beehive or how she did it. I don't want to talk badly of planning in films and continuity and so on, but I'm quite happy with it fell off. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I need any more than that. Do, do I? Maybe he'd it's pretty ingrained. He'd already like accepted that he was now going to form a bond with her, and so he shook them out. <laughs> Possibly. Um, I know it weirdly made such a big deal about the beehive being there, and she was even like, you know, waving her arms around to try and not get stung. And then the next shot, they're not there. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's perhaps a question for the production team rather than us. But you know, um, we could speculate. Yeah. It fell off, as Aaron. I don't have anything better than that. Do beehives just fall off things? I don't know. 
I think if you've got a transforming robot that shakes itself around a lot, then yeah, it might do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bumblebee was dormant at that point, though. But didn't she, at some point, you know, drive him away? That might have been enough just to make it fall onto the road. Yeah. Perhaps. Or maybe I don't know. Maybe. I think I'm good with this one. I feel like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm all right, actually. <laughs> okay. We'll move on from that one then. Um, good question, Susan. Thank you very much. Uh, the next one is, is this a prequel to the Michael Bay movies or more of a reboot? And that's from Rachel. That's a very good question. Um, I would call it more Isn't of a reboot. Isn't it a confused mix of both? I would say it because they didn't really know what they were doing. I'd say it leans more towards reboot than prequel. Because I don't think you could watch this and then, even though even though the way it ends, I don't think you could watch this and and then watch Shia LaBeouf uh, bonding with Bumblebee and think, wait a minute, (laughs) you know that would be that would be a really strange transition. Yeah, obviously it doesn't happen immediately because it's. Yeah, there's also isn't this film about. Bumblebee like blazing the trail for Optimus Prime and so on. So why is he doing that again? Yeah, twenty years time. But that's what's strange about why they have to why he gets a makeover at the end. Yeah. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? Unfortunately, one of those brutal things that occurs when the the production company says, "Oh, see how you've mostly made your film. We need you to add this, 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 and this in because." our test audience didn't like what you've done so can you just kind of make it completely different so by the time they'd actually gotten through to the end product it it might have supposed to have been a prequel but yeah. it automatically forced itself into alt-verse because it couldn't do anything else Yeah. although there are references to the first Michael Bay film uh, that I picked up on because I remember it fairly well um, the the Camaro being the most obvious one at the end, although there's actually a story reason for that. You know, the the yellow beetle is no longer a viable disguise because too many people have seen that this yellow beetle transforms into a robot, mm. and it's not the most conspicuous of disguises when you if you know that. I mean, if he was you know a white beetle, maybe could blend in a bit easier or or something, but um, the yellow beetle probably get noticed quite easily. Um, also, you could see it as being. I mean, the, this film references the eighties cartoons. The Michael Bay films reference the eighties cartoons to an extent. It could just be that it's referencing a previous iteration of Transformers by referencing the Michael Bay films because they are old enough, probably to you know have fallen into that. We can reference them. Sort of sphere. I mean, it's what twelve years. It just feels like rebooting Spider-Man like three times in <laughs> however many years that was. Yeah. Although, yeah, the Amazing Spider-Man doesn't really reference the Tobey Maguire films apart from you know retelling the same story, but <laughs> uh, with a different villain. But the there was also the Sector Seven thing, which is the you know the secret government agency, but they have no idea that Transformers exist, despite the fact that they're supposedly um, taking Megatron apart for scientific innovation purposes um, so yeah that's another thing that doesn't connect they don't credit Transformers w- for inventing the internet <laughs> <laughs> yeah human innovation drops out so I'm on a I'm on the reboot side of the fence I think it's more of a reboot that references what's come before 
whether that be the, the 80s cartoons or the Michael Bay movies or, or anything else. Are we deciding here what we think it should be now that it's done or what we thought we the do. production house was yeah. trying to do? Yeah, I certainly think from a production standpoint, it was marketed as a prequel. Yeah. I mean, it was barely marketed at all, but it was marketed as a prequel. And it probably should have been marketed as a reboot because if the whole the whole reason it's not doing well at the box office is that audiences might be a bit sick of Transformers movies, they should market it from the point of view of, don't worry, this one's nothing like those. What's the... this? What's this thought that it's not doing well, by the way? Because it's already made its money back and, and well, it's, it's almost trebled its money. Is it, is it just that it's not doing well compared to the, the, the more successful of the Michael Bay films? It's just uh, it's not gaining the traction that, um, that the studio wanted it to. Yeah. Because even trebling your budget isn't success anymore. No. I was encouraged back to it because I'd heard that it was, you know, it was good and it was... It was um, more true to the Transformers I wanted to see um, than the Michael Bay ones, because I, as I say, I stopped going to see those. So the news must have, if it was marketing or if it was reviews or something, must have reached me, and I think that maybe there's probably a great deal of people who, who would want to see it upon hearing that, so maybe maybe enough news did get out, because if you say it's made its money back or if it's going to continue to to be profitable, then... Uh, I don't think it's done too badly. It was certainly a critical success. And I feel like since it has worked, you know, it's um, it's people have enjoyed it, people have gotten a lot out of it, then they could just call this the reboot and use it to shape the direction of future films. Um, it actually is a bit of a holdover from this weird Transformers writer's room idea they had where they were going to make a, the Transformers into a cinematic universe. Which, you know, I can't imagine that was ever a good idea. I mean, uh, okay, Bumblebee gained some notoriety among audiences as being the kind of, effectively the focus of the Michael Bay films. Um, You know, it was the first Transformer you got to know in those films and so on. But will your general audience really care about seeing, I mean, I can't even name some of these characters, so, you know. That's probably slightly unfair, though, because surely you would have said the same thing about the Avengers in their individual forms. Like, would the audience really care about a Norse god running around wearing silly trousers? I mean, <laughs> if you if you say it in the right way, anything can seem like it could never work. But yeah. if they had done other things, if they had written better stuff, if they had offered certain crossovers and combinations and character plots, then... Maybe it could have. Maybe, uh, but they abandoned the idea before they even made this one. So, yeah. so that was that. Um, so, I guess to answer Rachel's question, I would say this is a reboot, and I'm happy it was. Uh, what would you guys say? Yeah, I'm happy for it to be. I think it has to be a reboot. As the prequel, they've already said there are too many things that don't match up. Some things match up with the films to to come but there's enough that don't that you're you, it seems like the only available option really is to say it's a it's altverse it's another what if it's a it is a reboot but keeping some of the points that presumably they'll want to use in future films yeah 
Angus, what were you? What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. I think I'm slightly annoyed by the the crossover stuff or the you know holdovers from the old films because I'd prefer if they just kind of cut bait with those. Even though, as we know, the there's a great deal of crew and staff and whoever was involved in making it that um, was involved here as well. So they're not going to chuck that all out the window. But I still think it would have been better because of the way this starts and you see some proper Transformers on Cybertron looking the way they should look, even though, you know, we know that they can uh, they can change their disguises. But anyway, that, that was amazing to see. Um, but yeah, I did just prefer a bit more of a clean break. That's why I don't really like the, the end that is a bit kind of ambiguous as in like he could be now going on to eventually meet up with Shia LaBeouf. Uh, and like you said, there's a few more nods and I suppose they're subtle enough that it, it doesn't sort of tie it directly to um, the first lot of films. So, reboot. I, I'm happy enough with reboot. And Ronnie's question is very much connected to that. It's uh, what do you guys think Bumblebee did in the 20 years between the end of this movie and the start of the first live action Transformers? And it's like, well, you know, the. This created film, five better films than previously were. <laughs> this this film will never turn into those as far as we're concerned, so Thank God. I think he hosted two beehives. <laughs> Maybe he did. Maybe that's a sequel. Bumblebee's a, a hive of activity for bees. I don't know. Uh, last question that I've got is from Adam, and this is probably one for you guys more than me. Uh, why do they look like cars, trucks, etc., uh, on their home planet when they've never seen them or been to Earth? <laughs> yeah, that's a. You know, that's actually not the one to pick out. He's absolutely right, but the one to pick out is actually Soundwave. It's like a cassette recorder, and and the robot that he ejects from himself turns from a cassette into a hum, into a, a, an Earth animal. So that one is. Yeah, that's just the way it is on Cybertron. Sorry, we we watch a lot of intergalactic telly. Um, sorry, that's just the way it is. Well, they know Earth exists, but yeah, because Optimus tells Bumblebee to go there. Which well, you know, to be to be fair to these guys, they've been at war for five million years. You know, you get bored. You know what? You're just looking around for someone else to distract you. Honestly, anything looks good. You walk, you say, oh, cassette recorder. Oh, my God, that's amazing. And there's anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, I'm totally going to be that. That's mine. You can't have it. The dibs. So I believe it's my favorite. And, and it's because I love the, the whole cassette idea. You know, anything that goes into something else or comes out of something else, there's there's more Transformers within them. Uh, that's amazing. What, you know, unlike Megatron, who transforms into a, a smaller gun that has to be fired by another robot, Soundwave transforms, or a person, yeah. Soundwave transforms into a giant-sized tape recorder, so it's not even. It doesn't even shrink down to sort of you know human size to be able to hide as a, a ghetto blaster or blaster, the Autobot well, that's, equivalent that's the for that matter. That he gets when he goes to Earth, I guess. Then because he. He was in the cartoon. He could. He could. Shri- that was the weird thing. He, he could, he could I guess, yeah, but to I'm, be a personal cassette player. Yeah, but I'm sure I saw. I've seen it in the cartoon as well, where he just transforms and he's he maintains his size. So he's oh, size is irrelevant. <laughs> size is a dimension that you can entirely play with when when you're in the Transformers. That's just a conceit you have to buy into when oh, yeah. you're watching a G1. It's just the the 
X, Y, and Z coordinates are completely meldable into whatever you damn well please. Yeah, and that's why all these things go to making him my favourite. Is there an explanation for how the the Transformers came about? What gave birth to them in effect and why they, they transform? Uh, I could have looked this up on Wikipedia, and so could listeners, I suppose, but you know, it, I've got it in my head that they must be some kind of slave race to some advanced civilization. Uh, that's okay, well. That's it. You've actually hit it. That was that was the original from from G G one. That was the original setup. But it's also sort of vaguely referenced in the fifth film. Oh, is it? All right. Yeah, something. The, yeah, I can't remember the name. The transforming comes for right. So how? Yeah, going to some massive lecture here. I was cut cut to the chase. <laughs> the. The transforming comes from the Autobots being a more civilian-style robot needing an advantage to fight off a military-style unit in the in the Decepticons. They they went to war and found that they couldn't beat military hardware, so they turned to stealth and gave themselves the ability to transform. That gave them an edge, and then the Decepticons copied it. So. They could cancel that edge, and and there we are. Right, Technological nice. development upon their home world. Call it that, and you've got. Uh, I'll accept it. Fair enough. Uh, Thus endeth the lecture. I've heard, I've heard worse. So, yeah. uh, Angus, you had some questions from the audience. Um, yeah, I, I'll let you guess who this question came from. Was it Natalie? <laughs> well, wait until you hear the question. <laughs> Is Bumblebee hotter than Optimus Prime? Oh. Was it Natalie? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, I don't really have an opinion on that, I suppose. Is it wrong that I do? <laughs> well, no, because I do as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think Bumblebee's got that sort of youthful charm. He's probably he's a bit cuter, but mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's still got to appeal to, to, the, to the younger woman. Whereas Optimus Prime's got the the strength of the experienced man, I don't know if his look. I don't know if his looks are rugged because I'm actually not genetically geared that way to look at metal. But I just get the the feel of the, the you know the older man syndrome. I could see that the younger Transformer women could be into that. You know. Do you think? So you think uh, Optimus is a bit of a George Clooney? I could totally go that way. Yeah, actually, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, I I think Optimus Prime. I I agree with you that Bumblebee's probably cuter, but I think that Optimus Prime is hotter. You know, the more kind of uh, grizzled, rugged leader type. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I do like um, I like Volkswagen Beetles, so I'll choose Bumblebee. Yeah, you've missed the point here. Get out. <laughs> it's an answer. No, it's not. Get out. <laughs> but I'm hosting. Damn it. Uh, um, I've got another question. Is it also from Natalie? Person. This is not from Natalie. This is yeah. from our friend Jamie. Uh, he says, "Can you see John Cena?" Um, I'm assuming this is a reference to wrestling. That <laughs> yes, that is a wrestling joke. <laughs> His catchphrase was, "You can't see me." All right, Bob. Uh, yeah, I could see him. He was there. He's obviously lost a step. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so hilarious. It just, you know, and uh, featuring John Cena, and then it just cuts to like a blank, <laughs> blank, blank, blank area. That would be a good end joke. Uh, and I've got, I do have a final question also from Jamie. Uh, how does the baddie hold up? Because he has seen the, the other films uh, and knows that Megatron is obviously a, a 
good baddie, pardon the phrasing, but, you know, he's a classic baddie. He's got a great voice. Uh, at least the proper original Megatron did. Hugo Weaving was fine. Um, how are the baddies in this film, do you think, compared to the antagonists in the other Transformers movies? Well, I mean, they have some personality, which they didn't in the Michael Bay films. Uh, they also look distinctive. You know, they're colour-coded and stuff, so you can tell them apart. Um, I quite like the, the scene where they, they faced up against this blockade and then they thought about, let's pretend to ally ourselves with, you know, humans. It'll make our job slightly easier. And um, and the fact that one of them was, you know, more of the planner. And I can't remember their names, but they... Um, and the other one was more, you know, more bloodthirsty. I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, they they weren't they weren't extensively well developed, but you you could sort of pin something on them. Just because I have to drop kick and shatter. Um, cool. <laughs> but seeing as I'm on that, do you know what I didn't really follow about the the choice of the villains was why they were two entirely new Decepticons. Yeah, I wondered that as well weren't from any of the previous continuities, despite what connections people have tried to draw with Dropkick to desperately connect them to G1, we can just say, no, it doesn't have a connection. Given that they actually used quite uh, reasonably well-known villain for Bumblebee to kill uh, in Blitzwing, and given that they bring in other characters that are perfectly well-recognised... Uh, I, I'm not sure what the value of making them entirely new Decepticons adds. I say especially because they were prepared to kill Blixwing, so it didn't matter mm-hmm. that they were going to kill off a main character at the end because they've already done that. Yeah, and staying true to the to the original, you know, main characters should be able to just get melted <laughs> left, right, and center. <laughs> so, yeah, I I didn't really understand why they weren't why they were new. Uh, I I agree with you, Craig. That I think that they you know they did what they needed to do. I like that they weren't just silver pointy things like in the Bay movies and that you know you, they were clear and you could tell who they were at all times and that they had their own sort of like you said characteristics um, but I don't yeah other than that they were they were just kind of there um, performing that role really of uh, being the antagonists chasing them down yeah I can't answer why they decided to come up with new Transformers Instead of just sticking with ones that already existed, but I wonder if there was. I just wonder if there might have been a some sort of story plot reason why, you know, or if it somehow connected to the other five films, and I'd missed it. No, I don't think it did. No, fair enough. I couldn't tell you what half the Decepticons were called in those films, though. They, you know, they were all generics. Yeah, or half the Autobots, really. Um, generics. Outside of Optimus Prime and Bumblebee, um. I'm struggling but uh, yeah um, so is that it for questions uh, yeah the other ones I think were kind of covered by some of our earlier questions cool alright let's move on to I'll start with kind of characters and, and see how we got on so we've got Charlie uh, played by Haley Steinfeld who is our main character um, she is the Shia LaBeouf of this film that seems a little harsh, isn't it? <laughs> what a title. Um, the, well, interestingly, this film does pretty much what the first film does in the sense that, you know, the um, the main human character bonds with Bumblebee 
Except this film does it a lot better, and it does it a lot quicker as well. Uh, you know, it doesn't waste any time getting you through the, the major story beats, and it makes something that, you know, it's endearing and urgent at the same time, rather than just, yeah, let's let's have long scenes of, um, I don't know, making fun of the dog and stuff, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I liked Charlie. Um, at first I thought she might have fallen into that, you know, rebellious, angsty teen trap, but she never does. She's very, very layered. You know, there, there's clearly a lot to her. Uh, so I'm glad that, you know, they took the time to develop who she was and every, every kind of aspect of her personality, um, the kind of lost relationship with her dad, all that stuff. I think it all added up really nicely. And Hayley Steinfeld's just great. Uh, and everything I've seen her in, I think she's she's excellent. I, the only thing I didn't really follow with her character was why she was into diving and where any of that came from. <laughs> uh, and she had a connection to her father through the thing that would also give her a connection to Bumblebee, which was great because it wasn't forced. It was something that would cause you to stumble across a machine lost in a junkyard. So that all seemed to be perfectly reasonable. Oh, and by the way, she's into diving, but not anymore. <laughs> so I'm not, as soon I'm not, as that I'm not was saying re- it. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. As soon as that was revealed, you, I just knew that there had to come back somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when she could have just reasonably just jumped into the water at the end. Yeah, she yeah. has to be a diving champion. <laughs> Um, that's a bit negative on my part, so I just want to say I completely agree. Generally speaking, I, I, I couldn't fault any part of the character or the acting at all, but it, because you've already said the positive, I just threw that on the end there. But but otherwise, yeah, the, the well was a bit weird. It was a bit underdeveloped in that she was supposed to feel connected to her father through it, because I guess he that was the thing they did. But she'd already had the music, which mm-hmm. also she was and able to share with car. Bumblebee, which connected into fixing his voice perfectly well integrated sewn into the plot and she could fix cars which she needed to do to get him working again because he's a machine and needed repaired perfectly well woven into the plot excellently done and i think where, why was there a need for a third thing the, the two only, things seemed to be perfect as they were yeah it only came into play at the very end which we know because she kind of takes a deep breath and then thinks yeah. I can I can refine my diving skill and then also just to cause a bit of um, drama at the teen party drinkathon where she was challenged to dive because everyone was like oh it's the diving champion and then it's she couldn't really do it weird thing to haze her about isn't it I know it was so, that was a bit weird you're such a loser because you won't jump into the water with me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was the fair, 80s. I think that, that does sound like it could come from teenagers. That, that wouldn't be my first problem yeah, with it. Twenty-five-year-old teenager. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> but that's that's just American cinema again. Yeah, it's not just this film. Yeah, yeah. although I think uh, she's believably a teenager. Um, I don't know how old she actually is. I think she's about uh, four years. She's about two, three or four years beyond her teens, most, and that's yeah, near enough, I guess. Mm. Yeah, um, she looks young though. Uh, I think my first exposure to her was um, uh, Edge of Seventeen, which is a great film. Because um, she kind of plays that, which well, is a much more damaged teenager in, in that film in, in a lot of ways. But uh, here she's a bit more she's a bit more mature in some ways, but immature in, in other ways. Mm. 
I think I, yeah, I think she's pretty right, cool. I'd need to Google it. Is, is she the one from True Grit? Did I did I hear that right from someone? I don't know. Yes, True Grit. She's in True Grit. Yeah. Yeah, it's been so long since I saw True Grit, so. So she's quite established as an actress. You know, not just a not just a newcomer. Indeed, and the voice of Gwen Stacy in Into the Spider Verse. There's <laughs> a podcast coming soon. Very soon. Um, so yeah. Um, other than the the, the confusing diving uh, <laughs> subplot, shall we call it? Uh, kind of stu- stuck out about Charlie to to you guys. I think that she was convincing as a a bit of a rebel, but you know she was. We know we know why that was the case because of her relationship with her dad. The music was good. She had good taste in music, um, and she wasn't enough of a rebel that she um, didn't stoop to working at an amusement park or in a what was it corn dogs or something she was selling so she had that kind of uh, undercutting her her cool kind of rebelly greasery type side to her character um and riding a moped around when she really dreamt of um owning her own car yeah she also feels like or i get the impression that she feels like she's sort of sleepwalking through her life at that point she's waiting for her life to start you know her her dad's death clearly put a stop to some ambitions that she had and um, and now she's stuck in this situation she doesn't want to be in. She doesn't really like her mum's boyfriend. Um, although I like that they they don't actively demonise the, the mum's boyfriend, the you're not my dad type thing. He's a fairly nice guy, it's just that she doesn't want to accept him. Mm-hmm. Which is perfectly valid um, as a position to take when you know something like that happens. It's, it's tricky actually because I'm possibly a child of the internet now, even though I was born before it. Uh, but it, it's easier to pull out negatives than it is positives, and therefore I'm stuck thinking, what can I say about this this particular performance? Because I, I did think it was really good. I think one thing would be that it's a fine line. I think when a character has to stomp around all the time, especially as a teenager, to make sure they're not annoying. And whether that was the writing or the acting, I think they did a really good job on this because at no point did I ever feel like I wanted to tell her off as the grown-up. You know, I really think that you felt for her in all of her problem situations. You you did agree that she was the one who had been put upon by life. Even though the parents weren't demonised, they were the standard 80s parents from an 80s film, which I don't think was the wrong choice. I think, I actually think making them that slightly cardboardy, useless parent was the correct thing to do, given the style of the film they wanted. They wanted you to go back to the 80s. They wanted you to have that the kids are cleverer than the adults perspective, so it is about the kids as the main protagonist of the film. And, and they weren't too stupid I mean they were too stupid but not too stupid for an 80s film they were exactly the way they needed to be so she always felt put upon and you were with her all the way through whether it was Bumblebee wrecking her house whether it was her parents requiring some daft things of her like to smile more often (laughs) you you know you, you were there with her in all of those particular scenes and 
And so I think that's particularly well done, whichever, maybe it's both sides, writing and acting. Yeah, I think she struck a fine balance between, you know, she obviously wanted to be cool, uh, but um, not like the cool kids at school, but she also um, wasn't too cool to be amazed or kind of um, put off balance by finding a giant robot in her garage. (laughs) And I think she did a good job of that. I mean, well, she was kind of moody, but like, she wasn't that stereotypical moody. You know, she would she'd be happy at things or she'd let herself be vulnerable and you know only in certain situations but she would let herself be vulnerable and i think him um, yeah fleshing her out that way was was the best way for it and um i loved her relationship with bumblebee and i loved the way they they portrayed it i mean bumblebee because he loses his memory early in the film is basically a child and he has to be retaught all these things um you know which is obviously a uh, a mine of comedy. Um, thankfully, it's not frustrating comedy. You know, <laughs> I think a lot of the gags do work really well. Uh, I like seeing them sort of transforming into a 15-foot robot or however tall he is and then hiding behind a car because he's scared of this little <laughs> tiny human standing in front of him. You know, it's that, that kind of... Because um, you would almost expect that to be the human reaction. So giving Bumblebee the human reaction humanizes him, you know, very early on in that respect, and the way they communicate is great. You know, there's an awful lot of like body language and um, figuring out what he's trying to say rather than what he's actually saying. And I think, I think if they'd left his voice intact, it might have just been a lot of scenes of them sitting chatting, which wouldn't have been that interesting visually. Yeah, the non-verbal stuff was good. And he, you know, he's sort of cowering in the garage when she, when he um, wants to hide at some point, and um, it's it is an interesting kind of juxtaposition to him proving that he's a capable soldier in the beginning when he's having that battle. So um, yeah, it's interesting to see him. Dylan O'Brien for, for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, interesting to see him kind of reduced down like that, or as you say, he's got, had his memory wiped, and then he. Um, he feels very vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, I was expecting to be really annoyed by that, actually, because I I really struggle with farce. <laughs> Not because I hate farce. Actually, farce done well is it, it's just as good as anything else. There's no reason it shouldn't be, but I don't think modern farce is very clever and it degenerates into... Either either pointless slapstick, or it's something that's just not grounded in the rest of the plot. The mm-hmm. joke just stands out. Mm-hmm. No connections. No reason the character did that other than because the physics of their universe demand that every X minutes of scene time they do something that is funny to some <laughs> unseen force. Whereas. I'm struggling to say why it didn't annoy me here, why I did like it. I think I might have to say that I've talked myself into suggesting then that it's it was always relevant to what was going on at the time. It wasn't just slapstick because it was slapstick. It was it's that farce that is that is right back to the old eight, uh, black and white films where the character turns around and knocks someone over with the big plank of wood because they're desperate not to knock over the other person that's standing on the first side of them. So that it has a reason for being there. You, you know, it, it makes sense to you. Because in a modern class, it would just be, he has a plank of wood and he somebody with it. It wouldn't be very clever. So 
I think it must have been that, but I, I'm slightly struggling to prove it to myself. <laughs> I think some of it was verging on a wee bit too cutesy, but you know, I think it kind of towed that line. You know, it walked up to the line and then maybe didn't cross it too much. Well, that, that thing you were talking about happens in the scene where he wrecks the living room. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that. That was my direct inspiration for yeah. for for that referral. Yeah. Desperately trying not to break one thing while trashing everything else around him. I mean, it's a ridiculously old joke. I mean, there is there's there's no denying that it, you know it, they didn't invent that joke, but it, done well. There's a reason it's funny because it, it it it's from someone who's not trying to hurt anything around them, and of course it goes completely the other way. It do, yeah, properly done. It does work. I mean, it wasn't hilarious, but but it 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 was welcome, I guess, which well, I don't I mean, find it, it in a lot of modern class. You know, it wasn't trying to be a laugh a minute. And, no, um, I think the gags do land for for that reason because they are deployed sort of sparingly. Um, the, one of the funniest things I keep thinking of is that scene on the beach where she's trying to teach him how to hide, and then uh, she hides behind a rock, and he also hides behind a rock. Um, and the sort of uh, payback scene is one that I think of as well. You know, the trying to toilet paper the house and he hurls the whole lot of it and then he t- trashes the car um, by getting a bit overzealous. <laughs> Stuff like that. And I think, you know, that's... It, it sort of blends into the whole, you know, this is what teenagers would do and uh, this is effectively Charlie trying to teach her pet new tricks. Uh, and it kind of blows up in her face in a way because then she gets involved in a high speed chase in her conspicuous yellow beetle what about Bumblebee on his own as a character Um, obviously we see him as the capable I guess he's just a foot soldier at the start Um, I think he's supposed to be a scout uh, Mm -hmm. scout operations he doesn't even have a name to begin with no that was interesting yeah um and it's only he's only named by by Charlie, but so he's yeah so he's a scout and um, I quite liked it when he gets to Earth and he sort of talks to the the military people by like saying you know I'm not here to hurt you or or whatever else and then he, um, then he's attacked by that Decepticon that you named earlier that I forget his name that's fine right, thank you <laughs> it is. Although it looks a lot like what I thought Starscream was supposed to look like. Yeah, they're part of the same unit of of uh, I forgot what they're called actually. They have a name. They're they're part of a group of of, of flying warriors. Uh, they mm. I, I'll find it. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you see him as that capable soldier, the very well trained, sort of able to think on his feet and stuff. And then he's sort of they effectively press the reset button, gets his voice ripped out. So he can't express himself, his memory's corrupted, uh, and he and he sort of reverts back to being a child, um, and and I quite like that sort of the frailty of him early on, uh, and and how that kind of builds because when he gets back to sort of full fighting strength, you feel like he's sort of learned something as well, or he's learned to appreciate Earth and humans and everything else, so. You know, it's not just that he gets his memory back and everything's fixed. It's more like he has to take those lessons that he's also learned, get into that point and, and apply them in some way. I don't know if it was purposefully done, but 
I did appreciate the way they took it from the thought of an AI learning. I could envision a, a new AI that has great intellectual capabilities, but no real way of knowing how to use it coming across as quite childlike. Because it, the, the, the creature that was the bumblebee without any memories was more like, it wasn't just not having memories, it was more like not having understood how anything really works, except that you can still use all of your motor functions. So it, it, it feels like it's an AI that has all this power, but the coordination is gone. So it, I don't know what it is more about. It's more memories. It's also the experience of putting things together and realizing what they do. So he, he does seem to learn in the way that made me think, I, I have no real experience of AI, but, but that felt like what I can imagine an AI would be like, as it didn't need to learn how to do things. It can walk, it can jump. It can push stuff around. It just doesn't know why you would want to do any of those things. And these other people turn up and they've got all these amazing reasons for doing things. And, and so it, the machine is learning that. It's learning the why rather than the what. So it, it, it distinguished it from, I mean, you, you likened it to a pet. And it, it sort of was, actually. They made him very much dog-like, especially on the mm. beach. But, but it, it, it wasn't he wasn't purely a dog that had no ability to understand or learn beyond a certain dimension and it wasn't a child that needed to slowly put things together so I think I appreciated whether it was supposed to be an AI learning or not, somehow it felt right for that and it adds a sort of in-universe explanation for how he gets discovered by the Decepticons as well, because you know he has no idea that anything's after him and he's just <clears> wandering <throat> about and then it ends up just being a simple mistake that alerts them to, you know, his presence um, and where he is. So, you know, it's stuff like that that really works. It, it it doesn't feel contrived in that way. Although, I mean, inventing the internet is, I suppose, a little bit contrived. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Because, yeah, that's not how the internet works. I don't know. <laughs> Connecting two phone lines doesn't make it the internet. No, it should never have worked. But it doesn't. But let's just walk away from that. It's just the only way out. Yeah, I was glad that they didn't um, overdo the using the radio to talk too much because it's a good idea. But I think it's best done in small doses. And it it was until it was like quite late in the film, I think, before he started properly communicating through song lyrics. Just so happens that those songs are on at that specific time. <laughs> yeah, you just have to believe that. And he's obviously, you know, he's got a powerful enough AI brain to be able to kind of scan through it all and perfectly patch it all together. Um, but yeah, when he, I didn't realize that he was going to lose his voice, and and um, when I realized that that was going to be part of the plot, I was a bit worried that it would they'd lean too heavily on that. But then I think that there was enough, like you said, kind of dog like. Of a relationship um, that he didn't have to. A lot, a lot of it was kind of um, non-verbal communication. He didn't have to use the songs too much, and obviously the songs and the soundtrack in the movie is good because of the setting. But yeah, I was I was pleased with the way that that turned out because it, it played on me a little bit. I was a, a bit worried that they were going to go too uh, radio heavy. Yeah, it would have been an easy crutch to lean on. And I'm glad that they didn't lean on it because 
it would have just been as almost well, it would have made them possibly more dull than just having a chat about their feelings. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, this song easily tells you that Bumblebee is happy, but you can tell he's happy by the way he's expressing himself. You know, stuff like that. I think that. Um, yeah, I, I think that they did a really good job with that, and um, clearly very talented animators. And you, you've also got Haley Steinfeld's really talented performance, so she's able to play off this thing that isn't there. And you know, the, it feels like there is that tangible connection. Yep. Uh, I wasn't so fussed about Charlie's parents. I think it's like you said, Aaron. They're the parents in an eighties film, and they're kind of there for whatever purpose they're supposed to serve. I'm surprised at how heavily they were featured, though. Um, you know, like in E.T., how the mum basically disappears at some point, you know, and, and is rarely seen. I was expecting that, and E.T. is obviously a, a comparison you can make with this film, and I think it's an intended comparison. You know, they've tried to give you a sort of E.T., Iron Giant vibe with the way it comes across, and the, those 80s films where the parents are never around, or Stranger Things, I guess. Uh, I've only seen season one, but the parents are never about there either. The Goonies, The Karate Kid, yeah. all great movies where the parents just um, disappear at some point. Yeah. And it's accepted that that sort of thing happens, but they're they're around for most of it, and they end up playing a, a sizable part in the in the ending. I mean, it is that teasing a car crash that never happens, which I thought was quite funny. Yeah, I'd agree. I think that they were okay, but they were, you know, as you've said, they were pretty um, rote characters and did what they needed to do. Uh, I also appreciate that they didn't go too heavily down the stepdad as a, um, you know, a bit of a dick. You know, he turned out to just be a well-meaning kind of idiot. (laughs) But um, And the brother, you know, I thought he was quite funny as well, just as the kind of just like in a lot of these other 80s movies that we've been talking about, his his love of karate was uh, beautifully 80s, and yeah, he was just there to kind of be amazed by things and um, provide a bit of, bit more comic relief as well. Well, it's when he was lying about Charlie being in her room. Uh, you know, the, the just the obvious, very rehearsed, not natural sounding lie. I thought that was, that was really funny. Uh, a character I thought was really pointless was Memo. I think you could have almost done without him because he doesn't really add anything. And they make a joke out of it at the end where it's like, world's already been saved and he just shows up and he's like, can you call my mum? <laughs> he's gone. But I didn't really buy their connection, although I like that they didn't do the um, the standard oh, he's going to be our boyfriend. Um, I think that was his real reason for being there, if I'm honest, that final scene. For that joke? That, well, I'm not sure joke. I think it was more social commentary saying just because you're in a the situation doesn't mean you have to get together commentary you know that's not what women want really sort of thing it's mm. um i think it was just to get to that point he needed to be in there for them to make that comment and then perhaps they you know didn't really give him anything to do but then maybe that was all part of it maybe that was supposed to be one big long singular point that this is the reason why you don't have to get together with this person because there's no reason why they are particularly necessary and useful to you throughout i think that's a bit cynical but <laughs> but but i'm um, yeah i don't know what 
what else to say about him other than perhaps someone said, can we have a love interest, please? Yeah. Pause. I just think you could have cut him and not really lost on anything. Uh, he wasn't bad, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't that engaged by him either. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, again, a bit kind of just there to be wide-eyed and um, provide a bit more of that sort of comic angle to things uh, and not save the day. So that's kind of the most um, 2018-19 message of the movie was that, you know, she doesn't maybe doesn't want to hold his hand or give him a kiss or need to be saved by him at all because yeah. she's perfectly capable of doing all these things with her robot friend. Yeah. Um, doesn't need... She's a strong, independent woman. Doesn't need no man. <laughs> I suppose another version of the film could have been that it would have been Memo that was the lead, but they, I think they purposely went with a young woman to be... Well, maybe to, to be a bit different and... You know, because you get so many of these boy in his car type stories, don't you? You know, that's what the the first Transformers film is, mm-hmm. um, or at least some of it is. About an hour of it is. Um, so it's it flips the script a little bit. I suppose the simplest explanation for why he's there is to give her someone to talk to, because she can't have a conversation with Bumblebee. That's the point. But yeah. at some point, somebody does need to say. I think we should do a run on that base and try and rescue him. You know, you don't want exposition, but at some point somebody has to say something, otherwise it is just a bunch of people clearly thinking a lot of things very <laughs> seriously. <laughs> so he, he sort of needed to be there for plot purposes. It, it is a bit of a shame that he couldn't have been slightly more capable, because I think they would have still been able to have the meaningful ending where they do not get together in a romance there's no harm in her having a friend on the journey with her there's no harm in her at some point feeling a little bit of doubt or just because you're a strong confident woman doesn't mean you have you have to have all the answers you know that you are still allowed to occasionally listen to suggestions from another person so it it it, feels like he was a bit under he was pushed down a bit too far to make him a worthy character i think there was room for him as i say just to just to be a sidekick everybody has a sidekick lara croft gets a sidekick even if just as i say to to have someone to talk to whilst we're divvying out the guns you know yeah could it have been the brother and like make it a bit of a kind of family affair, you know, um, the family caper, the way that some of these mo- these movies that it's clearly kind of riffing on are, yeah. or did they have to, you know, does it help to have someone who has the potential to be a, a romantic relationship, but that's kind of a, a bit of a swerve because that's not the way it ends up going. Well, you couldn't have your social commentary ending if you did if you made it the brother, and I yeah. think yeah. I think that was important. They, the the writer seemed like she wanted to take it back to the eighties, but only in certain ways that are mm-hmm. palatable to the modern audience. Mm-hmm. The other parts of the eighties films are gone and need to stay that way. <laughs> However, if she was prepared to give up that point. Um, and just rework the 80s films without having to, you know, to make it as, a, as an active comment, then they could have made the, she could have made the brother a bit older and, and just said, well, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a buddy movie, it's a family yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, removing the... If, well, they didn't remove it because it was still there, but the, the familial connection, so if it had been 
uh, Charlie Bumblebee and Charlie's brother, then you know the the brother might have been there a bit too often, and it might have been you know the the relationship might have been the three of them, whereas it was specifically focused on Charlie and Bumblebee. You know, all the emotional heft comes from those two characters, whereas Memo doesn't connect to Bumblebee in any measurable way because he's not supposed to because because it's not his story. Um, but, you know, you have to get to that point where, um, you know, where Charlie believes he's dead and I suppose someone has to be there to say, no, no, he's dead, just leave him um, before he naturally sits up E.T. style and he's fine. Um, despite having been shot in the head by what you presume is a fairly powerful gun, it was a good moment though. I mean, it was you know it was probably the most the strongest ET connection for me that that particular moment because you have the infamous almost death scene in, in ET as well. But um, yeah, I think if I think if the brother had been a more uh, had been the third wheel in effect, it would have muddied that a bit. Maybe, but I do think that in a lot of these um, 80s movies we're talking about, there, there's always that kind of... I mean, that's what he was playing, was the kind of annoying kid brother who uh, all wants to be involved all the time but gets kind of pushed out of the way. Um, but, yeah, I think that maybe that would have given it... For me, it would maybe have given it a bit more of the, the a stronger vibe connecting it to those because in those movies, usually the kid brother or kid sister or whoever gets taken along for part of the uh, the adventure and that's kind of what makes it a great those movies were so great to watch with your family or your with my sister because you know it was something like you could imagine oh, maybe this could be something that we could get wrapped up in you know <laughs> you just find your transforming robot friend and then yeah and as annoying as your little sister is you know eventually you're like ah come on let's go <laughs> yeah um, what about Agent Burns, John Cena? I thought he was great. John Cena is hilarious. <laughs> I don't think he was particularly stretched in this role. No, of course not. I, I saw him in Blockers last year and thought he was really funny in that as well. Uh, you know, he's he's a lot funnier than I guess. I, I mean, I suppose people do give him credit for being quite funny, but yeah. Uh, but he was very good. I like that he's the military guy who's the only one that um, that that sees any sense you know they're literally called Decepticons <laughs> does that not raise any red flags and then the the guy's like yeah but we're using them um, we're using them and uh, I'm ordering you to do this and he's like right cool I have my orders I'll just do them even though I think they're stupid so it's like that yeah he's only half heartedly going through with stuff because you know obviously he's beholden to follow orders but but he thinks it's dumb at the same time I think he is funny I think he's a good actor I think he's probably going to attempt to follow that same kind of Dwayne The Rock Johnson trajectory and that this I know he's been in a couple of films already like you just mentioned but um, I think going for these kind of military parts is the kind of safe um, you know get your foot in the door sort of uh role that he can go for before maybe transitioning into I, like I say I think he could probably um, The Rock still does his fair share of action movies but he'll be in a Moana or in a you know more family friendly movies playing different sorts of characters than you'd expect nowadays so I, I think John Cena could probably he's perfectly capable of doing that but as I say I think he's taking these kind of uh, 
take the take the roles that people expect him to play first, and then maybe transition to that in the future. It would have been so easy for him to be the pantomime villain, though. You know, he could have just been the the military guy, the evil military guy. And I think one of the trailers hinted at that because just because they showed him standing at the the foot of a blockade, you know, and, and looking a bit shifty. But um, I'm glad they didn't go that route. I was impressed that they didn't do that. Yeah, I think that that's probably. I don't know. I, I would have expected. I expected him to do pretty much everything he did in this. Anyway, you know, even if he was, if he was part of the, the antagonistic human faction, he was always likely to be the one that was the you know, had the heart of gold and you know, <laughs> let them off with it at the end that sort of thing. Yeah. I just loved his comic timing where you know where he was questioning the parents and it was like. I stole a box of whatever it was, some sweets, when I was like, old. And he's like, yeah, we know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Just the, a reference to the fact that the, you know, the government are watching you even then and see somehow <laughs> learn these things. Yeah, who would have thought that getting hit over the head repeatedly with a steel chair sets you up for a, <laughs> a life in comedic action roles? Yeah. Aaron, did you like Miss, uh, Mr. Burns? Agent Burns. <laughs> <laughs> he is a mister. He is a mister. I think he's another character that's defined by what he manages to avoid, and and that's a good thing, as you said. He would have been so annoying if he'd have been played further into the stereotype that he was edging towards. Did well at the start to block that actually by doing the comedy with the paintball gun, because the the character that is traditionally in the eighties film with the stick up his ass, who is definitely the the villain, and always does the wrong thing and makes the wrong decision, so the bad guys can can get even greater advantage, is just too annoying. So by having him in the middle he was able to still do what he needed to do, get in the way, make things harder, but not in a ridiculous way. So he does well by by not being too grim, not being too stupid and and, and doing the job. And he sort of sympathises with Bumblebee early on when you know he first lands. I mean, they chase after him, but then they find out that he doesn't want to hurt people and then they see him be savagely attacked. Yeah. Yeah, so, there's, so there is that. So... Um, Again, he's just sort of following orders, which... Um... In a bit of a ham-handed way at the end, you see it, what it's supposed to be. The relationship is, hey, he's a fellow soldier, and we both, so we both know where we stand. Now, I, the salute at the end is, is very 80s and was a bit too far <laughs> for me, but, if, but generally played throughout <laughs> where it's, well, hang on, you're a soldier that just got attacked by an enemy soldier. I completely relate to that. That's that's the that's the level that I I liked to that and and would have kept it there throughout if possible. Yeah, I would have just liked to see a bit more of him. I think he was criminally underused. Uh, cut memo and give us more burns. That's my take. Um, so in, I mean we've kind of touched on what the story is in terms of the kind of what happens, and I do like that it's really simple. It. it spends more time on the relationship than building up the effectively the Autobot Autobot hunt that makes up the the cause of it. So Bumblebee has to find a suitable place for the, the Autobots to hide out, which is Earth, which he's already been told to go to. 
Um, it's a bit weird. Go here and um, make sure that it's safe. But we already know it's safe because we're sending you there. But yeah, whatever. It's just it's just a reason for him to be there. Um, but yeah, f conti like keeping it character driven rather than plot driven was was the right thing. And as opposed to the Michael Bay films that don't really do either. They just meander along until eventually they finish. Um, but there was, you know, a distinct structure here. Everything happened because of other things and then it came to a satisfying conclusion. More or less. More or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously you have the, the big blowout at the end. And I thought that was even just quite a creative fight as well. You know, you get the sense that Bumblebee's outnumbered. Um... Charlie's useful. Uh, the objective what, is very simple. I don't know what they did with the other films, obviously not having watched them, but the, one of the things that stands out for me is, is the best part of that fight. I mean, it is a bit of a... It's purely, it's purely for visuals, I guess. I don't know if it makes sense. Uh, no, I don't know. Either way, what am I trying to get to? Say something useful. Um, <laughs> see the bit where in the fight and a character that can transform into a car gets thrown... It seems very appropriate that that character doesn't just collapse to the ground and scrabble to their f scrabble to their feet. They turn into a car, land perfectly, use the momentum to turn round, and then use the same momentum to come back at high speed to ram their their uh, the, their combatant. And it it's it's stuff like that. that I, that's what I want to see from a Transformers film. I don't want to see two large robots fighting as the, the big kaiju films give you, where it's humans inside robots, where they just have to sort of battle in, in an awkward human form. I don't know that they used it a lot throughout Bumblebee, but that, therefore, when, it's, when they did do it at the end, because I think he's fighting Shatter at the very end, and he, he transforms in a useful, meaningful way, and you think, that's a, that's a, that's a great fight scene. I was that one I was really into, because it... It, it used who they were. It's almost like using their form of a martial art. It, it made perfect sense. Well, it does happen in the Bay films as well. They do move very gracefully. Right. Because they should move gracefully. Because, yeah, they're not man-made. They are living beings. They, yes. They shouldn't be clunky. So, I think some are clunkier than others in the other films. Um, but, on the whole, you know, they're... Uh, the ones you would expect to be manoeuvrable are all manoeuvrable. Uh, so, you know, Bumblebee's biggest advantage is that he's, he's smaller, therefore faster, and a bit nimbler than the other two. And, yeah, uses that to his advantage. Um, so you you could... S there was definite tactics going on in the fight. Yes. Which, as opposed to, we'll just keep hitting each other until someone's head comes off. Well, I think that's a big danger that you're suffering a lot with uh, some of the superhero stuff that's on TV at the moment. You, 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 there's only so many different ways they can show you a, a cool martial arts manoeuvre where the good guys fight and win. So when you do actually see somebody try and choreograph something and put some thought into it, it really does stand out. Yeah. Uh, Angus, what did you think of the kind of the structure of the story and in that action sequence at the end. It was really the only... Well, there was obviously the action sequence at the start. There was a return to that action sequence in the middle of the film. And, yeah, that was about it. I preferred the action that happens at the beginning of the movie. 
um, because it happened at the beginning and it was a wee bit different to um, Big Battle, which is always in the dark and um, usually involves um, hulking robots or Iron Men or superheroes smashing each other about for 20 minutes uh, at, the, at its most merciful. Is it also because it was unadulterated fan service as well? Uh, yeah, I just think it looked better. I think it just all worked better, and you know, there's a bit of there's a bit more dialogue in there, and there's just a lot more to it than at the end. I appreciate what you've said about the choreography at the end, but um, yeah, I think that's why I preferred the earlier stuff. If they'd maybe if they'd had something like the the initial fight at the end, that would have been good. But then they wouldn't have had the initial fight at the beginning. Yeah, they they could have. I suppose easily return to some big battle on Cybertron and then um, I guess delivered something a bit more derivative but you know I like the strategy I like seeing strategy in fights and you know the the fact that there's two Decepticons versus Bumblebee is you know it's the underdog story isn't it it's always the underdog you know the heroes have to be outmatched and outwit the the superior force of the villains yeah, and of course we got the we got that dive, <laughs> that necessary dive. Yeah, it's not as if he saves Bumblebee by diving; he's fine. He's just chilling at the bottom of the. Maybe she saved herself. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it, it also references the shape of water in some way, which is probably not a comparison you want to make. Yeah. Um, so you so you would like to see more Cybertron action. Oh yeah, that was some of my favourite stuff. And they were actually colourful and looked right according to what I consider right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the um, the possibility that they could do a sort of Prime spin-off? You know, a, a thing about Optimus Prime on his own. I, I think he's probably best when he's a leader. You know, when he's involved with his team. Well, we were having that discussion after the film, weren't we? And it's like, you have to go right back to the beginning, otherwise he has nowhere to go. Yeah, I think there's room for something in his history, if they wanted it, where he learns to become a leader. I don't know if there's an audience for it, but I think there's room in, in the plot. Yeah, because otherwise he's just the wise leader that orders people about, and there's nothing... But generally, some I think what we what I was saying to you when we were chatting to you after the film was some of the stuff that I liked about the cartoon was when the character that had the unwavering ideology of the day, so he was supposed to be the shining example of of correct choices, was placed into a situation whereby his ideology couldn't help him. I think. The most obvious one that fans of G1 Cartoon will be able to name the the episode directly, and I can't because I'm, I'm not that good, but there's the, of course, crazily over-the-top story where the the choice he has to make is between saving Earth or saving Cybertron because of some collision of events. And it's one of those impossible choices. So the character that, that has the perfect ideology is still stuck 
and has to try and come up with a solution. I mean, of course, it's, it's, it's a kid cartoon from the 80s, so in the end, of course, they save both. But the point was they at least go down that route of saying, you've said that you must do the right thing in all cases. Okay, well, the evil Decepticons give you a choice where there is no right thing. Go, what do you do? And I've always valued that in, in the cartoon from the 80s that dared to do something you know, something along those lines. It did point out to a child that, oh, sometimes there isn't a singular right way to go, and it's just a matter of whether you can punch the bad guy hard enough or not. You know, sometimes it actually is just, it is just, a, it is just difficult, and you have to find a way of applying the lessons that you've, you've learned from, from base principles. So I, I think there's room for an Optimus Prime to have to make that type of decision um, and I, I don't know whether that would need I don't think that needs to be early in his in his career but it, I think it would be easier certainly they sort of touch on that in some of the Michael Bay films um, the, the first film he's sort of this virtuous leader who's like I will protect the humans at all costs you know they, they deserve to make their own mistakes they deserve to learn we had our chance and then by the time you get to the first Mark Wahlberg film, he wants to kill um, Fraser because Fraser has melted down a lot of his people. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to say it was good, but it was something. You know, they did sort of test his resolve yeah. uh, as the films went on. And I suppose that, that kind of thing is what you're talking about. It's like, what would drive Optimus Prime to kill a human or, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, what would drive him to intervene in stuff that's none of his business? And, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, because obviously the Prime film would have to be Earthbound in some way, wouldn't it? Because otherwise you just alienate a large chunk of the audience who might not want to watch essentially a CGI cartoon on the big screen. Logically, unfortunately, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, he'd be your next logical step for... Your next logical stop for a spin-off, though, because he's the other character that people like me know about. Yes. Yeah. Um, although I did like the... I forget when it came out, but it was a cartoon called Transformers Prime. It was CGI animated. It had uh, Josh Keaton in it as well, voicing a, a human character. You know, the spectacular Spider-Man voice actor. Yeah, it was good. I think it ran for about three seasons. Something like that. Um, and it was... I mean, I, I found it fairly watchable. For the most part, I don't remember much about it, which probably says a lot about it in itself. But was he isolated in that? No, but he did have kind of non non conventional choices to make and um, had to navigate a kind of tricky landscape. I wouldn't want to see it if it was if he was isolated and it was another kind of um, well something like this because I think that Bumblebee works quite well and that he's a scout and he's um, out there on his own. Um, but yeah, I think Prime works best when he's got... He gets found in a junkyard and he has no memory and he becomes <laughs> a mechanic. I think he works best when he's the leader of the team and when he's got... You know, he works best with his arch-rival um, being the antagonist and I think we've already had those movies. Yeah, this is true. We've talked a lot about like the 80s-ness of this film and um, actually, like I was thinking to myself recently, I thought... This film almost feels like it was made in the 80s. You know, if you look at the stylistic stuff, like, even the clothes are, are very 80s-like, and they don't, you know, they don't try and, like, highlight any particular fashion trends, and even the cars are just kind of dull. You know, not everyone has, like, a proper 
full-scale 80s, you know, classic car. It's, you know, the even the popular mean girl type, she just has that, you know, pretty boxy-looking... Is it a Mercedes? I don't know. She has a fairly boxy-looking, unimpressive car. Uh, and I quite like that. Just, you know, the it's almost like they made it in the time period it's set in. Uh, and obviously you've got the music, which... You know, all the needle drop music cues. Well, you're correct. They yeah. did do that. So, on that note, uh, is there anything else we have to say about this film? Well, I think I, I wouldn't mind going back to just the references to the to the 80s film. Because um, I know they referenced the old cartoons, but they did reference the old 80s film as well. And I know you've, you've said your piece on it, that it's it's there for if you wanted it. Uh, and it, it wasn't too much in your face if you didn't. But I don't think I want to go away without mentioning it, just because it did mean, you know, quite a lot to me. Um, and they are, it is quite small, but it's just moments like the, 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 the point right at the start where they're having a battle, it's going wrong, and then Optimus Prime jumps in from the side to save the day. Now, that is an iconic moment in Transformers the movie. It, 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 it's, it's almost one of the moments that define the whole film. Is that the point where he gets killed? Uh, Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers, yeah. <laughs> well, it leads up to that point. And the reason I want to give it mention is because it's also, it was such an important moment for me as a 10-year-old watching because I think it's one of the ones, it's one of the moments where I must have seen for the first time and realised what I was seeing, which was self-sacrifice. Um, and I don't want to draw too much into a film that obviously was for kids and I was 10 years old, but just to, just to say that it did mean a lot to me that because I did draw something from it and they did reference it, I kind of been the only one from watching that film that at that point was just glued to the telly, you know, cinema screen, you know what I mean? Um, well, and they even do it quite subtly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the reason, I, the reason I wanted to give it some mention is because they didn't go over the top with it. It wasn't a big self-sacrifice moment. It, they didn't make it into this big scene where the camera uh, stays on Prime too long just so you know how cool he was. I don't think they played it too hard. I think it was just a nod. And I do appreciate that. Because some of the ones are really subtle as well. That Braun gets um, shot in the shoulder in the early scenes which is something that he gets that happens in 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 transformers the movie and you think well that, that's just even an unnecessary nod but it, again it points out that they cared enough to go into it have a look at it find out what it was and not make it a meaningless nod you know well, travis may is a fan he was at comic-con promoting the film and he was making all these references, apparently, that people understood and people were quite chuffed because he was, you know, saying yeah. the right things. So, yeah, uh, he's a fan making a, a film, you know, about something that he loved. And he would have been like you. He would have grown up watching it as well. Absolutely. So they finally hired a director that, that has that reverence and wanted to, you know, celebrate that, I suppose. Um, yeah. I saw someone on, I think it was on YouTube, I forget who, but they talked about, this is the film where Transformers fans can show you why they like Transformers. <laughs> and 
I mean, like, because I don't have a connection to it, I can only take their word for it. But you know, I totally get it. And uh, I, I think I'd struggle thing. to show you from this film why I liked the previous because they don't harp on about it too much. They are just nods. I think I think I would describe it more that it's the film where the Transformers fans can remember what they liked about it and not feel it was lost. That was the thing. Because when they play the touch at the, oh, yeah. you know, the, to, just before she's supposed to dive off the cliff to show how cool she is by diving, it's, it's a, again, it's a nod. It. it is actually supposed to be something that if that music was playing, it would be playing over the top of something heroic and jumping from a cliff is obviously going to be heroic for her because she needs to have that courage. So they do... He, not only has he taken something from the film, they could have picked any 80s power ballad for that moment, you know, because it would just be, you just get the strength from inside you and throw yourself into the action. Well, they didn't. They played The Touch, which is all about some, which is actually Prime's main song. It's the point where you do actually have to have a lot of courage to do what he did. And it, it, what is it, three seconds at most? It's, you know, but it's yeah, there. It's just and it shows that they care. <laughs> no, there, yeah, there's, a, there's three or four lines, I think. Yeah. Um, my question is was the song written specifically for that film or was it a pre existing song? No, now you've said that. Because if it was written specifically for that film in this universe, why does that song exist? I, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not sure, but there are a couple of Stan Bush film uh, songs on in the film. Um, but I'm not sure whether or not they were. They just really loved Stan Bush enough to kind of include two of his songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a good question. Right, let's find out. It features prominently. This is this is great listening for people. Yeah, carry on. Uh, it was used in the film Boogie Nights. That doesn't make any difference. It doesn't say it was from the album The Transformers: The Movie Original Motion Picture Soundtrack. So it suggests that it was intended for use in that film, if nothing else. Looking oh wait a minute! The... Originally written for the Sylvester Stallone film Cobra. No way. <laughs> <laughs> its inclusion in the Transformers soundtrack was quote, was Bushy's first exposure to the franchise. The touch was also featured in the Transformers animated series 1987 episode The Return of Optimus Prime Part 2. <laughs> I'm just going to read the entire Wikipedia page. No, it's, so, okay, it was written for another film and then used in this film. Okay, so in this universe they just don't it, use it in Cobra and it never gets used anywhere else. It is a legitimate artefact. There we go. There we go. That's fine. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Otherwise, your opinion on this movie would have changed entirely. That's it, that's it. Um, yeah, um, I mean, I, I knew the song. I have actually seen that film quite a while ago. Did not enjoy it, it has to be said. But I don't have any connection to the material, so, you know. Um, it was the first Transformers thing I'd ever seen, and I was lost. I had no idea who anybody was, what the hell was going on, why I should care. It's a different context there was because yeah. back then the it, in it, the audience was the kids watching the film there was no understanding these days that there's infinite material out there so you have to fight for every pair of eyes as an audience and therefore you have to be perfect in the 80s you could release a film knowing that the 
people who watch the TV series would go and watch it, and that would yeah. be enough. Mm-hmm. And know, then there's the, the, the context era. of the, like we were talking about, how the gags all, for the most part, land. And um, that reference works because it is just to, it is just Bumblebee, Bumblebee showing that he believes in Charlie's ability to overcome this fear that she's imposed upon herself. Oh, and yeah. you could, you know, you could have accomplished that if he played Eye of the Tiger instead. You know, it would have been the the same effect, but you know, it's a, a legitimate reference that works because it just works. You know? Um. So yeah, no issues with that. Again, empty referencing. That's that's why I didn't like Ready Player One because it just kept chucking references at me without appreciating why I like those references. Or why I might like those references. Um, so yeah, this night, didn't feel cheap work. like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so that's two nostalgic '80s films in one year, in, in a sense. Um, whereas this one does it better. Yeah. So, any final points that you want to make on on this film, Angus? Uh, it it brought me back to the cinema to see a Transformers movie, so it <laughs> it did something right, <laughs> and made you excited to perhaps see more Transformers movies. Potentially, I'd have to do my research beforehand to make sure Evaluate that evaluate on a case by case basis. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, definitely, um, there was enough in there to kind of stir up some nostalgia, but it wasn't entirely my enjoyment of it wasn't entirely nostalgia based. Although the the, the, the nods, the music, the the, the way that some of the Transformers looked to the sort of G1 stuff, the fact that Soundwave's in there ejecting some <laughs> ravage, that was brilliant. <laughs> that all worked for me. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed all that stuff. And then the stuff that I wasn't expecting, I also enjoyed and really liked how it was, um, how it kind of riffed on not just Transformers, but other beloved 80s movies. Cool. Aaron? I would say that the like Angus, the film that I want to see is the continuation of the scenes on Cybertron. However, I recognise that that is a film that I cannot ever see because <laughs> it is it is in the past and and it would be difficult, maybe impossible to bring it back. But this film, Bumblebee, is then the perfect compromise the between the film that I really want and what is realistic to put on screen. It gave me enough of both that I could enjoy it, even though it was different to my preferred. It was still done in the light of the, the, the first. It, it honoured the first and... It was enjoyable as well that it did even take me back to the 80s, as it were. So so this can only be my favourite of the Transformers films because I was never going to pick anything else. But (laughs) despite that, I think it did earn it. I do do think it stood stood as a good film without that. So, yeah. Yeah. You could um, play the... As a compromise, you could play the two... PS3 games um, that are like about the the Cybertron War. I have them both. Right. They're entertaining. They're just you know third person shooters with transformed skin on them, but you know they're they're okay. From what I recall. <laughs> well, I, so. I 
I don't think that would take me close to the, as you say, the even though they were, they were kids' mm-hmm. cartoons at a time when they they did children's stories. They didn't worry about trying to play to a child's intelligence, and you know they didn't really go for it in the same sense that some kids' stuff does now. But they were still meaningful. They still have meaningful plot lines. I think I'd want a bit more than a third-person shooter could give me. Well, you could play the soundtrack to the film in the background oh, <laughs> if you wanted, you know. But, uh, it was just a thought. Um, I'm going to say I really enjoyed this film. My exposure to Transformers, is, you know, as I've said, is, is fairly limited. Um, I got into it after the, the Michael Bay films. So I watched. I actually watched a cartoon called Transformers Animated as well, which was very different to those films, you know, as opposed to the Transformers that aren't animated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it was okay. Um, in the Transformers Prime series, I quite liked that. Don't remember why, but you know I did for what it was. And uh, the Michael Bay films, I'm not. You know I don't jump on the hate bandwagon as much as other people do. I do recognise that they're not that great, but you know. I built that bandwagon. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think you did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love this film. Um, I saw it twice, um, which you know I do often anyway but you know I have to like a film to see it twice uh, or or in the case of Venom I have to be doing a podcast to see it twice uh, yeah um, enjoyed it I love the central relationship I love the references to E.T. and things like that um, I like the characters it was just a good time it was just a good feel good time and I'm going to get it on Blu-ray and watch it again uh, and I'll yeah I'll probably it'll be one that I keep coming back to I think because uh, it's e- it's an easy watch. Uh, sort of final thing, what I would like to what I'd like to see is you guys coming back to do a, a podcast about the eighties film. Oh. <laughs> see, I could totally talk about that. Yeah, I don't know if you would need a third party that has no idea what you're talking about, uh, or not. Well, a third party whose first exposure to Transformers was. What, the 80s film. film. <laughs> <laughs> what, well, I could revisit it? With no context. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we could try and set that up. Do people want that? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I have my doubts, but um, yeah, like Aaron, I could probably talk about that. I think it'd be an interesting experiment. I could easily talk about it. I don't know if you, what sort of balanced viewpoint you can get, you know. Here's something that defined me as a child. Am I going to listen to you rip it to pieces? <laughs> you know. It's, well, it's... I had the Power Rangers experience, so yeah. you know, for, <laughs> for that was savagely torn to pieces. So, hey, I tried to, you know, provide some balance in that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's something we could discuss in the coming weeks, months, years, whatever. Uh, so that that's something I would quite, I'd be quite interested in. I'd quite like to. You know, I've heard bits and pieces about what you think of that film, but I'd quite like to hear a more in-depth critique, I guess. I Yeah, it, it's pretty definitive uh, early childhood experience for me as well, so I'm sure I could talk about it for a while. <laughs> Let's make that happen. Yeah, so any final points? And I know I just asked, but any final, final, final points? Uh, yeah, I got mine in. Go and watch the Transformers movie. Go and watch uh, the Transformers episode of Toys That Made Us. And then uh, go and watch uh, all of the G1 
Transformers series. <laughs> no, I think that's, yeah. No, I Actually, you should probably watch the G1 series up to the point that then the movie starts, because I think it takes place within that. Is that so I can just watch robots fighting over coloured cubes? Yeah. Yeah. Over Everyone wants Energon. <laughs> Energon, yeah. So, thank you for uh, indulging your love of Transformers to talk about Bumblebee. Uh, thank you for being here, Angus. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Aaron. Thank you. Someone leave us off with a Transformers catchphrase. Uh, Now light our darkest hour. Oh, very good. So that was our discussion of Bumblebee. Thanks to YouTubers L Guitar Tom for his cover of the Transformers theme and Dan's Guitar Music for his cover of the Stan Bush song The Touch. If you like what you heard, then hit that subscribe button on iTunes, YouTube or any major podcasting app. iTunes users, please do leave us a star rating and comment to let us know that you care. If you want to talk to us, then hit us up on Facebook and Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, we hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. Yeah.